Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, we live in dangerous times. The prospect of nuclear war, global economic depression and famine are all openly discussed as distinctly possible within the next few years. At times like this, not only do we need good leaders, of which there is a shortage, and I'll get to that in a minute, but we also need to be wary of who might steer us into one or all of these catastrophic crises. Is it this bloke, Chinese President Xi Jinping, who has promised to take Taiwan, starting a war in the Pacific that isolates us in resource-rich Australia from our military ally, the United States? Is it this bloke, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has sent tens of thousands of young men to die in Ukraine, destroyed half that country and might just launch a nuclear weapon on Europe to prove his machismo? Or is it this guy, US President Joe Biden, who mumbles into microphones, shakes hands with imaginary friends and laughs at any journalist who asks about the mounting evidence that he's been trousering kickbacks from despots for decades. No, it's none of them. For a start, Biden is too dottery to be taken seriously by anyone. As for the other two, she and Putin, they know that their expansionist goals will be met with considerable resistance. They can only achieve them through stealth, not through global unity. Xi's meetings at the G20 in Bali overnight were testament to that. For all his nerdy aggression, he's still exercising diplomacy. And Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese deserves credit for scoring a meeting with Xi in Bali tonight, which will hopefully lead to China dropping its $20 billion worth of trade sanctions against us. But even if it does, it will do little to reduce the damage that will probably be caused by this bloke, unelected British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. His global agenda is almost as deluded and destructive as Putin and Xi's, but he has 10 times the influence and he has the morality of the zeitgeist behind him. Here he is at COP27 last week, announcing he will give away 11.6 billion pounds, that's 20.4 that, 20 billion Australian dollars of British taxpayers' money to other countries. Central to all our efforts is honouring our promises on climate finance. I know that for many, finances are tough right now. The pandemic all but broke the global economy. And before coming here today, I spent last week working on the difficult decisions needed to ensure confidence and economic stability in my own country. But I can tell you today that the United Kingdom is delivering on our commitment of £11.6 billion. And as part of this, we will now triple our funding on adaptation to £1.5 billion by 2025. But let me tell you why. First, I profoundly believe it is the right thing to do. Notice his subtle claim to the moral high ground and the way the, quote, difficult decisions to ensure economic stability in Britain, unquote, are not as imperative as giving money to other countries under the guise of climate finance. This isn't climate finance, it's grift. Where does his profound belief come from? Well, it comes from here. Or look at the devastating floods in Pakistan, where the area underwater is the same size as the entire United Kingdom. When you see 33 million people displaced, with disease rife and spreading through the water, you know it is morally right to honour our promises. The floods in Pakistan are the fault of developed nations? Are you kidding? As Alison Pearson wittily pointed out in an open letter to climate-grifting developing nations in the Telegraph of London recently, Pakistan suffers floods not because of climate change, 
but because they chopped down all their trees. It has the highest rate of deforestation in the world and has gone from 33% forest in 1947 to 5% today. Quote, because of the lack of trees, the rain runs straight off the mountains into the silted up reservoirs, which then overflow. In addition, we would like to point out that Pakistan has always had major floods, many just as catastrophic as the recent one. Not every national disaster can be blamed on the United Kingdom, gratifying and lucrative though that accusation may be." Unquote. In short, according to Sunak, British taxpayers should reward Pakistanis for chopping down forests because climate change. Sunak is one of the leaders of the push to transfer wealth from developed nations to undeveloped ones under this bogus globalist program. Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, has got the memo and snapped to attention, saying at COP27 he has fought very strongly for, quote, loss and damage caused by climate change to be included in the COP27 agenda because it's of specific interest to the Pacific nations. Well, of course it is. It's free money, mate. But the threat from Sunak goes far beyond him leading the redistribution of wealth to poor countries. He's a danger to democracy for a start. In December 2021, two years after his Prime Minister Boris Johnson won a whopping 80-seat landslide victory in Britain, Sunak, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, started stymieing the government's policy agenda. The Guardian said, quote, Sunak is effectively undermining every single one of Johnson's policy priorities. It is surely as brazen an act of political treachery as modern times have seen, unquote. Sunak was planning to take over even before Johnson resigned in July this year. Sunak is an advocate for central bank digital currencies, which would enable governments around the world to control the economic activities of citizens, much like China does already. His father-in-law is a founder of Infosys, a technology company that wants to introduce global digital IDs and has close ties to the World Economic Forum. If all that sounds like a conspiracy theory, have a look at the piece Sunak wrote for the Wall Street Journal yesterday, republished in The Australian Today. It would be pretentious even if Sunak had been elected Prime Minister of a leading world economy, which of course he has not. His sense of assumed responsibility rings alarm bells more shrill than Lydia Thorpe at an Anzac Day barbecue. Quote, the world will be looking to us to ensure the stability of international markets and to put the global economy back on path to growth. We must deliver and we must not let Russia, as the chief architect of the, of the current global economic strife, stand in our way." Unquote. Excuse me? Russia is to blame for the world's current strife? You don't think that it might have something to do with the rush to expensive, unreliable, renewable energy? a rush that Sunak is trying as hard as he can to lead. On its own, this suicidal obsession with renewables is enough to plunge developed nations into poverty, which is a surefire way to increase the likelihood of famine and war. Sunak's quote goes on, quote, Our collective economic security has been threatened by this war, so we need to get on with the job that the G20 was created to do in stewarding the global economy through the turbulence this act of aggression set off. In the UK, we are making the tough decision necessary to restore our economic stability. With so many countries suffering, we need to take coordinated global action too. Well, you reckon Australia will be strong-armed into signing up to that coordinated global action? Does Anthony Albanese yearn to be a member of the jet-setting elites? Sunak's five-point plan to steer the world out of economic trouble includes strengthening our energy security and reducing reliance on Russia by, quote, 
unlocking the investment needed to transition to renewable sources of power, unquote. Well, you lost me there, mate. And if response in Britain is anything to go by, you're losing the punters there too. Better call an election and get a mandate for all these grand visions. Or are elections not part of your globalist agenda? Well, my first guest tonight is Queensland LNP Senator Jared Rennick, one of the few voices in Parliament asking questions about the link between vaccines and the so far unexplained increase in excess deaths in Australia. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the total deaths in Australia for the first six months of this year was 17% higher than the five-year average. The indifference the media and government have about these statistics is in stark contrast with the morbid fascination they had during the pandemic for attributing any death they could to the supposedly lethal coronavirus. So we should all be grateful to Senator Rennick for trying to encourage bureaucrats, if not the media and his political peers, to look into these deaths. Here he is asking representatives from the Australian Bureau of Statistics in a Senate committee meeting last week. Is it possible that you can track those deaths by vaccination status, number one, and then track between the time of death and the time of vaccination? This is not a trivial question. These are Australian families we're talking about here. If these people died unnecessarily and the sudden spike in excess deaths suggests this is possible, then we should all be worried about it. I'm glad to say that Senator Rennick joins me now. Jared, welcome. How are you going, Fred? Good, good. Jared, firstly, the ABS's reply to your question in that committee last week was essentially that the vaccination status of every person who dies in Australia is knowable and that they would get back to you about it. How soon can we expect some insight into this? Look, that's a good question, Fred, and I honestly don't know. Generally, it can take up to quite a few months for the department to get back uh, to you, departments to get back to you when you lodge questions on notice. I wouldn't be surprised if the ABS try and uh, cover this up or, or you know, find a reason not to disclose it uh, because I think that there would be a lot of pushback um, in doing so. But we definitely know that it can be done because as many of your listeners would be, well be aware, you couldn't go anywhere without your little green tick in your iPhone. So, And that was all courtesy of the Australian Immunisation Register and Greg Hunt allowing to share vaccinated status with the states so that they could impose their authoritarian, um, you know, control measures as to where and where you could go at any time of the day. Exactly. I mean, they knew our, they know our status when we're alive. How can they not know our status just because we've passed away? That, that's exactly right. And if they were more than happy to, you know, contact traces, and actually I, ha I went to a function on the weekend um, with someone who, who works in New South Wales Health and who had a, um, you know, had meetings in the same room as Kerry Chant and uh, she, she wouldn't rely on, uh, she would never provide the actual information that justified the vaccines, number one, and, and they only had a very small number of contact tracers actually contact tracing. So um, you, you do wonder what the point of all of that green tick uh, was anyway because, you know, I, I mean, I, I can only go, that's only antidotal evidence, but I, I strongly suspect that, you know, it was virtually impossible to contract contact trace uh, millions of people, you know, as they went about their everyday lives. Yeah, definitely. And well, even at one stage, Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales admitted that the contact tracing was just uh, uh, just an act to make people feel more safe. But, you know, all yeah. that aside, our vaccine status is generally pretty well known and that there's no there's no real reason for the ABS not to be able to link this up. Now, look, the, the health departments around the nation were really efficient, and some might say too efficient, at attributing deaths to the virus back during the pandemic. Should they be doing the same thing now with the vaccine status of people who die, especially of young, healthy people who die of natural causes? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that, the COVID counting, you know, it was some of the most... Uh, 
well, I mean, you know, get, this is a word that gets probably thrown around a bit too often, but you'd have to say in the case of New South Wales, as far as I'm concerned, it was corrupt because the the uh, assistant to uh, Kerry Chan came out in a press conference earlier this year when Dominic, Dominic Perrottet was also at, and she she it was a big announcement that day that they were going to reduce the number of days of back drafting, back capturing, sorry, from 28 days to 14 days. And she actually went on to say that if you broke your fell off the fell off your bike and broke your arm and went to hospital and you had COVID in the prior 28 days, you were counted as a COVID case. So you know they were looking for any which way means possible to you know call you a COVID case. And we actually had the TGA admit to me on questions on notice uh, from the last set of estimates that the PCR test couldn't distinguish between live and dead virus anyway. So you know yet again. Um, you know, it, it's it's the the fear mongering and, and the um, uh, the way they've conflated COVID and and look for the record, I actually do think that there was a virus out there that had a bit more of an edge to it, um, but it was the reaction to it, the way they used these, you know, um, you know, imposed vaccines and the lockdowns and everything uh, in yeah. the name of a respiratory airborne virus. And humans have been living with respiratory airborne viruses for tens of thousands of years. And look, you know, they can be dangerous. Don't get me wrong, and we should obviously treat them seriously. Um, but, you know, if you stratified the, uh, this virus for risk, it was, you know, you, you could tell straight away it was older people who were most susceptible to the virus. Um, the average age of death from the virus wasn't much different to the average age of death. It varies between 82 and 84. Um, and I was told very early on by a qualified doctor, um, you can tell how severe a virus is by the average age of death. And just yeah. for comparison, the average age of death of swine flu in 2009 was 48. It's right. Spanish flu for what it's worth, yep. 28. Now, just getting back to your uh, your uh, um, conversation with the ABS in that committee last week, you also asked for a list of non-specific causes of deaths this year. Uh, this is in relation to, uh, you know, the sudden spike in excess deaths in Australia. Now, the ABS also took that on notice. Now, what, what are non-specific causes and what will they reveal when you find out what they are? Well, that's a good question, Fred. And actually, I was referring to, I'd actually already asked the ABS uh, about May or June this year for the 2021 breakup of non-specific causes. And they were at about 40,000 deaths out of the 172,000 deaths last year. And they jumped off the top of my head. I'm a bit rusty on these figures uh, by also double digits. But what I wanted to know was, were there any lots? So non-specific causes would be things like car accidents, workplace accidents, um, you know, our, you know, misadventure, um, and, and lots of other things that I, I, I don't know. Until I get a line-by-line breakup of those 40,000 deaths, um, I can't be sure. But what I wanted to see was, was there anything in there that could have been uh, put down as a health issue like, heart attacks, um, diabetes, dementia, which, as we know, have all risen. Well, interestingly enough, heart attacks haven't risen. So um, diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, has risen. Um, dementia has risen. Uh, they and, and dramatically, like diabetes was up something like 20%, um, which is interesting because if you understand the way the vaccine works, it actually enters inside your cell uh, and then produces the spike protein for export either in the membrane or goes outside it. So that induces an order, your own immune system to attack your own cells to kill that particular. Yeah, you know, that's how the that's that's how it's programmed to work. Is that you're training your body to produce a toxic protein, and then your own body's immune system has to stop that from happening by attacking your own cells, i.e., an autoimmune response. So, um, which is you know now they've got a correlation with an autoimmune disease and diabetes. Yet a, yet again, another red flag as to safe, as to the safety of the vaccine. So. I'm looking, in fact, your original question, I'm looking for line items that could be related to the vaccine. Now, I don't know what I'm looking for. I just want to, I just want to go through every line item that adds up to the 172,000 deaths from last year, which, by the way, was an increase of 8,706 deaths from 2020, despite the fact that there were more lockdowns in 2021 because New South Wales, as well know, was locked down for three months. Um, so, if anything, you would have expected deaths last year to be slightly lower than 2020 on the basis that once you're locked down, there's lower deaths from car accidents and things. Um, uh, so, and what's interesting, and the reason why the 2021 figures are very important is because there wasn't much COVID in the community last year, whereas this year they can conflate COVID with the increase in deaths. And, and 
yeah, that are you, are, you, are you saying that are you saying that there are people who are trying to attribute it to the virus instead of the vaccine? Well, yeah, this year they are. Yeah, they're, they're trying to attribute it to long COVID. So right. yep. the beauty, well, it's not, it's not, it's not the beauty. I shouldn't say that. It, it's the the what's distinctive about twenty twenty one is we only had about three hundred thousand cases in in Australia overall, and, and a lot of them were in the very last month. So up until late June, I think we had a first couple of COVID cases in New South Wales. If you compare the way deaths increased last year of that eight thousand seven hundred six increase, it jumped by it jumped. It didn't increase at all up until April, and it only jumped. And it then for the rest of the year, it jumped by about a thousand a month over the prior year, um, and that was immediately after the vaccine rollout. Yeah, oh, we didn't well, really get yeah, to- Jared, what you're doing is incredible work, and it takes you, you know this, this is th- these are logical investigations to be making, and uh, you're almost the only person doing it. So uh, you know, full credit for for having a crack. Now, just um, getting back to the vaccine, in another meeting committee hearing you had recently, you asked, this is a, from a, coming from an entirely different angle, you asked the Australian Communications and Media Authority, or ACMA, why Pfizer was not required to warn people of possible adverse reactions to its vaccine, which it knew about from the start. Now, ACMA referred you to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission what happened then? Well, they then pretty much uh, passed the buck back straight back to uh, ACMA. Um, but, you know, look, as someone who came from a finance profession, not that I work in selling financial products, but if you have to sell a financial product, you have to outline the risks and the, and, and the rewards. But that was never the case. Now, there's an exemption, and it shouldn't really be an exemption in my view, for government uh, public health advertising. But as far as I was concerned, Pfizer doctors, the AMA, the media uh, should not be uh, exempted from uh, public health advertising. So when they were just saying point blank that it was safe and effective, that was a straight out lie. They never did carcinogenic testing. They never did genotoxicity testing. They never did longitudinal testing. They never tested it on immunocompromised patients. They never tested it people taking other vaccines and other drugs, especially anti-immune uh, um Suppressants. So on the one hand, you're taking a vaccine which is meant to activate your immune system, but some people are on uh, anti-immune or, or immune suppressants, drugs, to, to suppress the immune system. So how does that work when you're on, you know, conflicting drugs at the same time? Uh, you know, there's very limited uh, testing in pregnant women. I think they tested it in rats. Um, you know, as if that's some substitute for a pregnant woman. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so I mean, the scenarios, these- the, the scenarios you're outlining there are just some, just, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg for the complexities involved here. How many years do you think Absolutely. it will take, Jared, before we discover what effects these vaccines have actually had? Well, well, it, it's taken months. I mean, took, took for some people, it's unfortunately only taken hours and days to realise they've, they've been ill from the, the vaccines. I mean, my first... Um, yeah, what my first red flag was October last year when I had a 30-year-old male contact me who had taken the vaccine in late August on a Friday uh, and by Tuesday he was in hospital paralysed down his right-hand side. Now, he was a healthy 30-year-old male uh, who had a mortgage and a, and a young child to support. He'd been out of work for over six weeks. The only time, and was still in bed by the time he called me, he's in a, he's, he's went to a wheelchair and he's still got... He's still got limited movement, but he has his movement has improved. Um, uh, but no financial support. He's still trying to get compensation from the government. Well, over uh, a year later, oh, that's fourteen oh, months. Absolutely. Oh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, well, well, as um, if you uh, there was an article in one of the media outlets back in September that vilified me, but they've only paid out forty-seven uh, payments up until that article, um, which was August. Uh, and I'm not sure how many they're up to now, but, you know, it, it's only a handful. And, I mean, I, I've, I've got a database of 8,000 people who've contacted me to say they've been injured, and of that there's 407 who've both been injured after the first one and lost their jobs because they couldn't get the second jab. So they got both injured and lost their jobs. I mean, some of the cruelty that's going on how around much of your time is How much of your time is spent dealing with these these poor people who've been so badly affected by this? Well, it's pretty much my full-time job now. I, I, I come in in the morning, but uh, well, even at the middle of the night, like we get messages on my, my, my Facebook page as well, like through the messaging system there. 
So I would probably get six to 800 messages a day. Now, some of that spam, like when I say spam, it's people, you know, sending me links. But there would be, on average, I reckon 50 to 60 people a day. Um, and it's, you know, it's dropped off, but then it surged again since last week because of, I've put those footage of the questions I'm asking and estimates up on Facebook. So that's brought a whole new wave again this week of people wow. um, contacting. So the federal government in that, in that budget a couple of weeks ago, the federal government put aside, I think if I remember rightly, 40, $55 million uh, for vaccine adverse reaction payouts. From what you're saying, that wouldn't, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's the tip of the iceberg. It's actually 77 million. Uh, oh, okay. And if everyone got $20,000, you could pay out 3,000 people. Um, but, you know, there's people who have been out of work for over a year. They've paid tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills. Um, you know, their spouses have had to give up work to come home and look after them. Uh, so, so, and I mean, I know people have had to sell their houses um, to basically pay their medical bills and support themselves. And I actually uh, used one of their um, cases whereby the government refused to pay out compensation despite having two immunologists, a hematologist, two neurologists. Um, I might have got some of that wrong in terms of what their speciality were, but it was about seven medical specialists that all said that vaccine had caused this particular lady's injury. And despite that, the TGA still and the health department still refused to acknowledge that that was caused by the vaccine. Despite, and they used the fact that Pfizer don't recognise it as a side effect. Well, Pfizer only... Uh, conducted tests on adverse events up to 30 days after the uh, second jab before they released it. Um, and if you look at the six-month data, adverse events in the vaccine group are much, much more than in the placebo group. And yet that just doesn't even get mentioned. They still say that evidence shows that the vaccine's safer. Well, it's not. Um, but in, yeah, so well, Jared, we, uh, we've only got a, only got a minute left. But what should, in short, what should the government do now? There's obviously a lot of people suffering, and we haven't, we probably haven't seen the end of it yet. What should the government do? Well, the government's got to stop uh, companies from issuing mandates. I mean, the mandates have to be lifted point blank across the country. And quite frankly, I think the vaccine rollout needs to stop. We've had over 10 million cases of COVID in Australia this year. That's recorded. So, I mean, I had COVID, as did my wife, but we didn't ring up the, you know, the, the government and tell them, tell them that we had COVID. I mean, it's none of their business, right? Uh, I mean, we did stay at home and isolate, but, you know what I mean? It's like, since when did you have to ring the government and tell them you're sick? Um, so there'd be plenty of other, millions of others that probably caught COVID and didn't log it either. So clearly it never stopped transmission and didn't stop people from getting it, number one. Um, the, there has been a you know, COVID death this year, but there's been many more non-COVID deaths in the last two years. So it's very questionable as to whether or not it's even effective. Um, I personally don't think it is. Um, and so, yes, yeah, step and then step three is to go about compensating uh, and helping those people that have either been injured by the vaccine and letting those people that you know have, have suffered as a result of the mandates let them go back to work. Well, Jared, thanks so much for what you're doing and thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks very much, Fred. Good talking to you. That's Queensland LNP Senator Jared Rennick. And for tonight's Woke Watch, here is some promotional footage of a political conference the online global event organiser Eventbrite is selling tickets to in Germany next week. The event will be hosted by the lovely people at the Deutschland Überalles Society, and all people are welcome. Well, all people except, you know, some ethnic minorities. Oh, and bring your own books, especially ones you haven't read, because, you know, what good is a book you haven't read, right? Eventbrite is definitely not selling tickets to this event, though. The barrister and co-founder of campaign group Fair Cop has had her book launch smeared after Eventbrite stopped selling tickets to the event. The ticketing site says the book, which is called Transpositions, Personal Journeys into Gender Criticism, promotes, quote, hate, danger and violence and violates their community guidelines and terms of service. 85 people had already booked tickets, but now it seems Eventbrite are debating about whether or not they made the right decisions. Just to be clear, and all jokes aside, this is the launch of a book. So banning it without reading it is a little extreme. 
As it happens, the book is a collation of people's experiences with transgenderism, not a manifesto about why trans people should be excluded from commercial agreements or made victims of prejudice. Victimising and prejudging people? Only Eventbrite can do that. Sarah Fillimore, who co-edited the book, is now contemplating suing Eventbrite, saying the company's terms and conditions are not allowed to override her legal statutory rights. You know, like free speech and freedom of association. If I was Eventbrite, I'd back down on this one, maybe with a neat little out-of-court settlement. And if they do, Fillimore should sell tickets to the victory party on Eventbrite and offer the nice people at Eventbrite a few free tickets. Some of these tech wokesters need to be reminded that there's more to life than book burnings and corporate sanctimony. Well, when future historians come to research Australia in the early 21st century, they will scratch their heads trying to explain why a nation rich in gas, coal and uranium chose instead to power its homes and industries by blanketing its land and offshore waters with unreliable expensive windmills and solar panels. Like the theory that lead plumbing drove Roman emperors to madness in the 5th century, our future historians might one day theorise that the high-powered metal detectors at Parliament House in Canberra that politicians walk through every time they enter the office, scrambled their brains so much that they confused modern technology with green fantasies. If there's a silver lining to this cloud, it is that we haven't implemented their mad plans yet, and there is still time for a brave politician, of which there's just a few, to run intercept on it all. My next guest is Michael De Percy a senior lecturer in political science at the Canberra School of Pol Politics, Economics and Society. He has a PhD in political science from the ANU and is a graduate of the Royal Military College in Duntroon. He's also a member of the Australian Nuclear Association and has written about this topic in The Spectator Australia. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. First, you point out in your uh, piece in The Spectator that all power generation plants work at differing levels of capacity. Can you explain what that means and what capacity the various types work at? Absolutely. In, in simple terms, we're talking about the efficiency of converting uh, energy, one energy to electricity in effect. And with our traditional fossil fuels, it tends to be uh, creating steam that spins a turbine with hydro, the water spinning with the wind and, and so on, but effectively converting one form of energy to another. Uh, and there are all sorts of uh, elements of efficiency that uh, take away from the original source of the energy. So when we look at things like nuclear, we're looking at above 90% efficiency, if you will, whereas when we come to solar, we're looking at around 25%. So so there's a, there's a whole array. And obviously the difference, of course, we have to take into account um, you're using certain fuels that cost money with uh, nuclear or fossil fuels, whereas renewables, effectively, the original source of energy is free. So how does that rate of capacity affect the return on the investment on building the energy power plant in the first place? Look, at, when we look at the existing grid, which is based around coal and gas, uh, in Australia, then we, we have traditionally 60 to 80% uh, efficiency or capacity, if you will. Th this is reducing as the, the coal power plants age and they're not being renewed. But but in effect, that's you, your energy grid is uh, as effective as the amount of energy that's being put into it. So if you have 60 to 80%, then your sort of uh, your investment is working at that rate for you, 60 to 80% of its capacity based on the original capacity. So when we start getting the wind and solar, in effect, what we have to do is overbuild so that when they're operating at full capacity, we have the capacity to uh, transfer the energy, if you will. Whereas if um, we don't overbuild, then we don't have that capacity. And at the same time, when we do overbuild with solar or um, wind uh, respectively, we're looking at a quarter to one third uh, of the asset being used uh, on average over time. 
So let's say, I mean, a lot of a lot of people when they discuss these topics, they they talk about it in terms of gigawatts produced or gigawatts gigawatt capacity. You know, as you say. So if solar works at on average twenty percent and nuclear works at ninety, well, let's be generous and say that you need four times as much capacity from solar installation than you do if you're nuclear. Is that right? In terms of the grid, yes, that's correct. That's, in, that, that's in such an overinvestment, point. though, isn't it? I mean, it's like buying a it's like buying a Rolls Royce to drive down the you know to drive to the corner shops every day. I mean, you're building all this capacity for something that isn't going to be used. Well, I mean, that's only that's only part of the problem. The other problem is that you're locked into a technology choice that uh, may not prove to be efficient in the future. And I'm not suggesting that we can't make things more efficient, but if we find that we have the same problems that Europe is having and we need to ramp up in a different way, we've basically got this enormous sunk cost of rewiring to address renewables alone without other considerations. And that, that's probably my major concern from my research where I look at the, and you mentioned at the beginning, historians looking back at our choices. I'm really focused on how historical legacies impact the choices we can make in the future. And one of the problems that I'm seeing with current policy, particularly around renewables, is not necessarily whether they're good or bad, but it's locking us into one particular uh, approach to technology. And we're also betting on that technology to succeed. So we talk about risks from climate change. And if we just accept it, that the normative face value that it's real and, and we just you know, move along policy on that basis. The trouble is that we're really betting on one particular approach to that technology to meet the demands of climate change. And I think that means that when we look at things like capacity factors, overinvestment to enable these particular technologies, if we get it wrong, then we've got another factor of overinvestment and sunk costs that we have to deal with as well. And, and that to me is the major problem in these early stages of this uh, renew, renewed approach to energy policy in Australia. Yeah, well, it contrasts with the, the conviction and confidence that politicians are taking us down this road. I mean, what you say is, is pertinent, uh, but it doesn't seem to register in Canberra. Now let's talk about greenflation. On top of all this overinvestment and unreliability and the possibility that the technology won't work in the long term, there's the concept of greenflation. Now, tell me what that is. Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of different uh, ideas around greenflation, but if I can put it in the simplest terms, if we look at where we would site wind farms or solar farms to get access to the best wind or solar conditions, then initially we're going to take the easiest options, those that give us the, you know, the, the most easiest approach to building that infrastructure. But over time, as we increase the need, and you've got to remember too that we've got a government that's also focused on electric vehicles as being part of this, this uh, solution. And electric vehicles will be an important part of the grid concept because technically they're batteries on wheels. So they have a role to play in this renewable future. But as you increase that demand, and if we talk about green hydrogen and all these other things that are going to come from renewables, the demand for renewables is going to increase. As this demand increases, we're going to need more land. And as we take up the best options, we're going to be left with the less better options in terms of where to build this infrastructure. So over time, it's going to become more expensive. Uh, it's, it's going, we're going to have, you know, it, the other thing is we're trading off use of that land for other purposes as well. Uh, so, you know, we've got to take that into account. But effectively, greenflation incorporates all of the extra demands that are created because of this particular policy focus. Well, so it's not just land, but it's minerals and, and so on. Do you get the feeling that the, the zealousness with which our current Labor government is pursuing this takes that greenflation into account? Because they certainly do want to ramp it up, don't they? If you look at the, uh, the, the parliamentary budget office assessment, uh, it, it, they point out all of the risks. So look, any, any crystal balling in the future is inherently risky because we, you know, if we knew the answers, we could implement them. But I think the problem is that all of our eggs are being placed in one basket here. 
And because there are risks there, then if this is not successful, then we, we've actually created then an entire industry, an entire infrastructure and system and institutions that push us into that particular continuation of that policy. Yeah. So it'll be very difficult to suddenly undo that and, and pivot to something different. Yeah. And, and that's what really can Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, and if, if greenflation does take off, it'll be too late to, to pivot, as you say. Now, in October, the Albanese Labor government earmarked $20 billion for the Rewiring the Nation project. This is essentially spending $20 billion to replace our existing network of wires and interconnectors to hook up instead to the new places where solar panels and windmills are installed. Now, would this be necessary? I mean, this, the answer to this is obvious, but I have to ask you, would this be necessary if instead we chose the nuclear option? Look, the, the nuclear option is not as simple as replacing things precisely in situ, like, like for example, to put nuclear uh, SMRs in particular into um, current locations for coal and gas fired. They may not have the geological conditions that would be suitable, but there are certainly other junctions, uh, according to my colleagues in the uh, Australian Nuclear Association and others I've spoken with, there are certainly locations where that could occur within the existing grid and it would not require that significant overbuild that we're looking at with uh, rewiring the nation. So there is potential there. Now, again, look, this this does have risk. It's not the, you know, it's not necessarily the perfect solution, but it is an option that at the moment is not even on the table. And that's what worries me because when governments, particularly Labor governments, we saw this with NBN, when they pick technologies, they don't take into the account political rights and property rights and all these other rights we have in liberal democracies, unlike other countries, the command economies. And so we, we end up with these systems getting caught up in politics, which means that they never get built or they cost a lot more than they initially were costed at, or if, if they were costed at all, yeah. uh, as we saw with NBN. Exactly. And, the and we're seeing with Snowy yeah. Hydro. Well, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Politicians are just solutions running around looking for a problem. Now, you say that um, choosing nuclear re requires social licence, which is a big issue in Australia. It, it hasn't fully been tested. No one's, you know embraced it as a policy yet but but by the same token doesn't doesn't uh, rewiring the nation require social license as well absolutely it's it's not necessarily apparent at the moment in on a grand scale but what we're seeing is in opposition to things like humelink uh, already there are property owners who are not happy with the way that it's progressing and this, of course, will lead to protests and legal challenges and, and other sorts of things, which effectively means that the rewiring the nation program doesn't have the social license that might be readily assumed by you know, somebody who's very keen to see renewables deployed immediately. And I think this is part of the other problem. Again, and I say this in liberal democracies, we have market systems and property rights and so on that need to be taken into account. We can't just railroad over those without affecting the way that you know, we value the way that we live and so on. And we're starting to see this with HumeLink and elsewhere. And I dare say, we've already seen this with, you know, gas plants and solar farms and wind farms and so on as well. So I think that as this ramps up, and we're talking about $20 billion, this is not just some small pro project. This is a, you know, major infrastructure project that is going to impact properties all over the country. Uh, so, you know, getting that social licence is something that actually hasn't been tested just yet either. It's not like we have a renewables grid where we've had the corridors protected already, which we've done in other cases with rail and so on. So, you, you know, the assumption that all of this can be achieved within the time frame is another great risk that is we're not really hearing about in the debates around uh, renewables versus other options. Well, just going on from that, you say in the Spectator, in your Spectator piece, quote, it is tragic that rather than having a bet each way on nuclear, and, on nuclear and renewables, the Albanese government is prepared to experiment with people's lives and livelihoods, unquote. Most people who support Albanese's plan would say that not reducing emissions is, a ri is riskier. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, the simple choice with nuclear is that it, it, it will help in achieving that target as well. And this is why I say, like, I'm, I, I don't tend to get too focused in my political science studies of, of policy around 
the normative aspects because this is what we're trying to achieve. It's a global thing. It's happening anyway. Nuclear can be part of that mix, whereas at the moment we're not even allowed that to happen. And, and I think the problem is that if the renewables does fail, then where do we go? We've lost skills, we've lost the industry, we've created institutions that are hard to, to turn back. And if we look at what's happening in Germany in particular, the knocking down wind farms to access coal mines, you know, uh, France is doing pretty okay. Canada's going back to nuclear, is investing in SMRs. So, you know, el elsewhere, these experiments have not worked. And if we replicate those failed results here, then we're going to be impacting people's lives. And, and it just doesn't make sense that we're willing to risk all of this on a single national solution. But again, we've seen that it's a bit of an Australian policy approach that we try and get a single national solution that's going to solve all our problems and then wonder why it cost too much and it didn't happen. And, you know, after an election, it that, that policy ended and we had to start all over again. Now, quickly before you go, I just want to ask you a question about Victoria because Victorian voters will be able to pass judgment on all this green ideology soon. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews is campaigning on a promise to re-nationalise the energy grid and build windmills off the coast of Gippsland. Quickly before you go, Michael, is he mad and will Victorians go for it? Look, I mean, that's up to Victorians. It's one of the great things about living in a federation. And, and I must say, I'm glad I don't live in Victoria. But uh, <laughs> if, uh, what concerns me is that renationalising will take away from our skills and our market base. It will take us back to the bad old days of Australian sort of uh, utilities policy. And what worries me too is that there's a potential end for increased unionisation, industry super funds coming in and we've just seen Labor overturn the coalition's transparency rules around political donations through super funds. So, you know, to me, it, it kind of looks like it's a bit self-serving. It's it, it's a way to re-establish a, a sort of Labor um, industry in, uh, in Victoria. And, and of course, we're going to see, you know, wages go up in that space and so on, which won't necessarily bring power prices down. So, it, it just doesn't make sense with all of our current uh, thinking around the political political economy, that renationalising the energy grid is going to produce the savings that they're talking about, without it costing in, in other areas of Victoria's economy. So, so I'd be quite concerned if I was a Victorian voter at this stage. Yeah, well, I hope a majority of Victorian voters agree with you, Michael. Michael De Percy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Pleasure. That's Canberra political science lecturer Michael De Percy. And before I go, have a look at this screen grab from the website of an outfit called the Sustainable Markets Initiative. I've highlighted the bit that is relevant to us here in Australia. It says the SMI's COP27 activity started on Friday 4th of November at a reception hosted by His Majesty King Charles III who convened the Sustainable Market Initiative's Coalition of the Willing alongside NGOs, the United Kingdom Prime Minister and G20 government ambassadors and high commissioners. In case you didn't know, the Sustainable Markets Initiative was created by Charles when he was the Prince of Wales, gallivanting from one elitist conference to another, talking about ways you and I need to stop traveling, consuming and eating food. Here is a clip from a video he shot for the SMI. We've forgotten sometimes, I think, that, that we are part of nature. So what we do to the world around us, we are doing totally to ourselves. We can't go on, I think, equivocating on this and just expect us to test the world ultimately to destruction before you can prove that you have destroyed it. It is climate change. That's pointless to me. There is life after apparent death from the current conventional approach. The fact that you and I might disagree with that climate catastrophism wasn't a constitutional crisis when Charles was just the Prince of Wales. But we all know what has happened since that video was recorded. My life will of course change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me 
to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. But I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. That's right. Charles is now king and he has discarded his political obsessions. Or has he? Apparently not. The above screen grab, revealing that he convened a meeting of fellow climate catastrophists and carpetbaggers, is evidence that he remains very politically active indeed. Even more intriguingly, the meeting was attended by new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who is a fully signed up member of the climate cult. You will recall that one of the few achievements by Liz Truss, Sunak's predecessor as Prime Minister, in her 45 days in office, was to advise Charles not to go to COP27. He reluctantly, he reluctantly heeded her advice, but also called the semi-official meeting for November 4, two days before the conference began in Egypt. Essentially, he got a few of his mates to take a detour to Buckingham Palace in their private jets on their way to Egypt. Sunak himself told COP27 a few days after his meeting with King Charles, quote, When Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II addressed COP26 last year, she reflected how history has shown that when nations come together in common cause, there is always room for hope. Appropriating the Queen's memory at a time like that was a bit crass, in my opinion. Nevertheless, it was confirmation, if anyone needed, that the monarchy is now in the climate change business. And just put yourself in Charles's monogram slippers as he shuffled around the palace this week, wishing he was with all his pals at COP27 in Egypt. The meetings his own Sustainable Markets Initiative hosted alone would have had him quivering with excitement. They talked about a pocket guide for sustainable aviation fuel. They issued a white paper about decarbonising the built environment. And... They published a framework to provide independent transition assessment to mobilise capital into transitioning companies and accelerating global progress to net zero. Honestly, how did Charles hold himself back from such scintillating discussions? But the relevance to us is what does it mean for the monarchy in Australia? The irony is uncomfortable for both sides of this debate. Would you rather be a monarchist who was appalled by finding the king is a green zealot or a Republican who thinks old mate Charles isn't such a bad bloke after all? I'm not sure how I feel about it at all, to be honest. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night right here on ADH TV at 8 o'clock. Good night.